Here we are now, with another episode of the Andrew Lake Podcast. If you are a regular listener of the Andrew Lake Podcast, please share your favourite episode, as this will help me find my audience. It will help to find the people who are ready to hear what we are talking about here. And today, today, I'd like to talk about the wounded warrior. This paints a very clear picture. This reveals so much if it's understood. It can make sense of many big and seemingly incontendable things that we encounter in life. The wounded warrior as an archetypal psychological picture is one of the most important things to understand. It's something to live up to. It's something to see in those that we admire. It's something that applies to ascended masters. It applies to those who are enlightened. And it really reveals so much. It has so much to it. And of course, really to begin, we should start with just a little bit of an understanding of what we mean by archetypal psychology or an archetypal picture or even depth psychology. Essentially, what we're talking about is a set of characteristics. We're talking about a character profile. And there's a rich history of archetypal psychology with Carl Jung and the likes thereof. But really, we want the practical side. We want the accessible side. We want the creative side. And in another way, this example that we're talking about today, which is the wounded warrior, can actually serve as an example of what an archetypal picture of psychology can be. And therefore, you can go on to create your own, to understand your own. And when you have enough of these examples, you can find for yourself what it means to create an archetypal profile, a character profile, a set of principles. And this can help with understanding. This can help with a sense of direction. This can help with making sense of big things, complicated things, deep things that happen in life that appear to occur in life. And it's my joy to share this with you. It's such a rich thing for us to be discussing. To be clear, also, we're not looking at this from a kind of scholarly angle. We're not trying to live up to Carl Jung and thereof the likes. We're actually doing this more in an experimental way. 
We're doing this in a more modern way, which draws on certain ideas, but is then applied in a modern way. It draws on traditional ideas, and yet is applied in a modern way. So an example of a archetypal profile would be the mother figure. So we all had a mother or a mother figure at some time in our lives, in our growth, in our birth, during our developmental years. And the mother has, well, certain characteristics, such as that she has a benevolent kind of love. She is caring. She has a power, similar to a kind of mother nature sort of power. She is protective. She is strong. She is diligent, enduring. She has stamina. And these are just some of the characteristics. If we want to paint a complicated picture or a deep picture of the mother archetype, we can go on to add more and more characteristics. And this works both ways in helping our understanding, because you can say, well, we all had a mother, so we can look at how having a mother has shaped who we are collectively as human beings. And we can reverse engineer this and say, well, how does that affect how we are now? How does that apply to you personally now? Were there qualities missing Were there qualities that you needed more of from the mother figure that you didn't get or that you did get? And this is how we blur the lines between your personal experience and the collective conditioning that we all have. And the mother figure is just one of them. The mother figure is just a sort of classic ABC example of archetypal profiles. But then we can take it a little bit further. We can say something like the court jester. Now, we haven't all been the court jester. We haven't all been the thing that is influenced by or even around a court jester. But we can say that, well, let's just look at that. Let's make that our archetypal profile. Let's make that something that we can work with to help understand things. What are the characteristics of the court jester? Well, he's in the king's court and he wears a funny looking hat. So he's a bit silly. And he says things that are, well, a little bit rude, a little bit cheeky. And he can actually poke fun at things. Now, that's very different to the other people in the king's court because they have to be respectful to the king and the queen. If they're an advisor for the king, they have to say what the king likes or the king will kill them. These sorts of things. And the jester is there to, well, to jest, to poke fun, to sort of balance the serious side off with a light-hearted side. And that's why the king would have a jester. That's why the king would have a court jester. Now, we can look at this and say, well, 
the evolutionary development and the imprint of the archetype of the jester doesn't have much bearing on our growth as a collective species or anything like that. We can say, well, it's not that everyone was the court jester, but we can say, how do we understand this as a profile? How can we look at some of those characteristics to see why they were employed, where they were employed, what were they used for, when was it good, when did it go wrong? We can look at that and we can say, well, when are we also in that situation? When are we also having those skills and needing those skills? How can we embody the court jester? How can we use that as a way into behaviorism, as a way into interacting with others, as a way into understanding others? Would you be able to see when someone's being the court jester? And I would wager yes. I would say that the class clown is the court jester. There's always that kid in class who just wants to have fun, and they're always poking fun. And the teacher, well, what does the teacher do? The teacher becomes more and more serious. The teacher says, no, behave. No, you're going to get detention. You're going to be in trouble. I have the authority. I am important. Listen to what I'm teaching. And of course, the Class clown sees all this and thinks, well, you're just a stupid teacher. I'm poking fun at you. I don't have to listen to you. Watch me. I'm not going to and see what happens. And you're so serious while we're all laughing. And that's a balancing. That's a yin and the yang. That's a kind of paradox, a kind of duality that's forming itself. And of course, if the teacher recognized this, well, maybe they wouldn't be quite so serious. And then there wouldn't be so much of a need for the class clown. And these are just examples. These are examples that we need to understand structurally. These are things that you can create for yourself. These profiles you can create for yourself. And I hope these examples have made that clear. And I hope you're creative enough to see eventually when you've seen enough examples, you've had enough navigating of these profiles, of these archetypes, you can see how you can create your own. And with that in mind, with all of that as our backdrop to serve as a kind of introduction I'd like to spend some time talking about the wounded warrior. And the wounded warrior really is quite complex. There really is so much to it. And I'd like us to take our time. I'd like us to think this through. And of course, your thoughts are not limited to mine. You're perfectly welcome to have your own ideas, have your own opinions. Add to this, 
picture that we're creating. And we make our way into the profile of the wounded warrior in the exact same way as we do the profile of the mother figure and the court jester. And the wounded warrior is a little bit more complex simply because it's really two in one. It's really two archetypes coming together. And that's why it's so deep. That's why it's so profound. So let's look at the wounded warrior in two different parts. We've got the warrior on one side. And we've got the wounded on the other. What sort of images come to mind when you hear the word warrior? This person is a warrior. What sort of scenarios are they in? What sort of actions are they doing? And how does it feel to be them? How does it feel to be a warrior? How does it feel to be a warrior in their natural environment? In the environment they were made for? And a warrior is a word that really covers a sort of old kind. It's sort of got a kind of old feeling to it. Because we could say a soldier. A soldier is a bit more modern. A soldier is a bit more like we're talking about a modern army where someone's got a gun. And a warrior isn't quite like that. Because a soldier, a soldier can be a warrior. But sometimes a soldier is a pawn in a game. They're infantry. They're a foot soldier. They're indispensable. Or they're, sorry, they're dispensable, not indispensable. So the soldier, we could have called this picture the, the wounded soldier. And we, we could have had something. There is still something in that. But it's not quite the same as the wounded warrior. Perhaps also related to the warrior is the fighter. Someone who fights. Now there's so many kinds of fighting. How many types of fighting? Fist fighting, gun fighting, martial arts, and so on. There's so many examples of fighting. And warriors do fight. A warrior does fight. There's no doubt about that. But just a fighter is not quite a warrior. What about a master? A master or a general or a leader. These are kinds of warriors. These are kinds of fighters. But the master, well, the master doesn't really quite cut it. Perhaps the master is someone who's something beyond the warrior. They're in a very different position. So the master doesn't really fit with what we're talking about, although there is something in that which is related to what we're talking about. And what does a warrior do? Well, they go on a rampage. 
They fight relentlessly. They lead into the battlefield. And there's also this sort of picture of the special agent, which is not quite a warrior, not quite a fighter, not quite a soldier, but someone more on the kind of, not master side, but someone who has mastery, someone who has skills like a sword fighter or a secret agent who has detective skills, tracing skills, as well as fist fighting skills, sort of like a James Bond figure. And I think in a modern way, the Navy SEALs actually do get close to the warrior picture. The Navy SEALs aren't, they're not soldiers. They're not pawns in the game. They're actually, they're actually very, they have a very high level of mastery. And really, if we were to have to put someone in a modern sense into this warrior picture, we would put the Navy SEALs and think about what they do. Think about how they work themselves. A Navy SEAL is someone who is bred to be a warrior. They are trained to be a warrior and they train, they train, they train. They have the most brutal training regimes. Exercises, drills, boot camps, enduring conditions, test after test after test. A Navy SEAL really is a kind of superhuman. The things that they can do, the things that they are capable of physically, psychologically, emotionally, is really quite staggering. It's really something. And they are some, to put it simply, they are just a real tough cookie. A real tough cookie. If you're a Navy SEAL, you're a tough one. You really know how to get through those rough times in so many ways. And I believe there would have been warriors like that in ancient times in battles, in pre-modern, and even in prehistoric times, there would have been warriors that were tough, that trained, that were really able to endure extreme hardships as a warrior. So that's a little bit about the picture of the warrior. A warrior is someone who really can make their way through a war. And in some ways, at some times at least, life is a war. And it can feel that way. It can seem that way. And I don't want to say that that's the only picture because I also believe that Life is a celebration. Life is a blooming. Life is a glorious opening, a kind of flowering. And yet also it is a war. 
It is an enduring. It is a pain. And it's exactly this which we are reconciling with the wounded warrior. It's exactly this that the wounded warrior understands. So let's look at the wound. Do you know what a wound is? Can we do some word association with this word wound? Pain. Suffering. Hurt. Helplessness. Surrender. Passive allowing. Now, when a warrior is fighting, he might get some scratches on him. He might have some hits. He might take some blows. He might have grazes. He might have something go wrong with his suit or his weaponry or something. But that's not quite a wound. That's just sort of that's just sort of the hit and ting tang bash of the environment that he's in. That's the sort of back and forth of what's going on. And you wouldn't expect a warrior to start crying if he just got a scratch on his face. You'd think, well, no, no problem. Keep fighting. Keep going. And that's partly what makes a warrior a warrior. Is they get the scratch, they get the hurt. And they just keep going. They just ignore it. They venture for that. That's part of their toughness. But the wound, the wound is something else. When you have a war wound, there's this phrase. (laughs) I remember saying somewhere there was this phrase, war wound. (laughs) I think that was a different context. That's why I was laughing. Is Is there a way a war wound is used as a euphemism? (laughs) I can't remember, but it's enough to make me giggle, whatever that memory is, whatever that subconscious memory is that's happening there. I don't know. But let's come back to a more solemn version of the word wound or war wound. Now, when a soldier gets wounded, it means they can't go on. It means actually they're out of action. And when a soldier really gets wounded, the thing that is terrifying, the thing that is scary is that they might not make it. This might be a wound that causes them to die. This might be a wound that they can't recover from. And it's always the peak of the battle. It's always the climax It's always the turning point when the warrior gets wounded. When the hero falls down and they don't get up again. And all those that are around lose hope. It's really when when you win the war against your enemy. It's when their strongest hero is wounded in such a way that they can't stand up again. That they can't keep going. And of course, this is a terrible morale fall for all those in the army, for all those looking on, for all those supporting this hero, because they think if they can go down, anyone can go down. This warrior, we were sure, could survive anything. This warrior could do anything. 
and yet they fell down, and it might be that they can't get back up again. And we see this in life. We see this in our pain, in our suffering, in our hurt. And really the thing that makes hurt so hurtful is that it might be the end of you. It might actually be something you don't recover from. And that can leave you with a sense of helplessness. A sense of giving up, a sense of losing the war. A sense of falling down and not being able to get back up again. And there are varying degrees of this. And you actually see this in so many ways. You actually see this warrior wounded in subtle ways and in very real, in very really quite profound ways. Even, even in something more shallow, such as the special agent. Look at James Bond. Look at the James Bond character. So he's a kind of warrior. And yet, what was the peak moment? What was the real thing? It gets you going with James Bond. It's when he falls down. It's that moment when he gets hit and he goes down and you don't know if he's going to be able to get back up. Everyone thinks he's dead. Everyone thinks he's lost. Now, one of the most famous James Bond movies of modern times was Casino Royale. And in that, movie, James Bond fell in love with the beautiful Eva Green. Eva, please call me. I'm waiting for you, Eva, please. And in that relationship, well, he actually has his heart broken because Eva Green dies right after betraying James Bond. And that is a kind of wound. That is why we line up and pay for the movie. That's why we want to see James Bond. Because he's this big strong man, this hero, this special agent that can do anything. And yet he gets hurt emotionally. And in the most sensitive, most close to home, most tender of ways. It was with his deep love for this beautiful woman. And that's a picture of the wounded warrior. The same thing happens with Iron Man. Look at Iron Man. Iron Man. Indestructible. His name suggests it. There's nothing you can do to kill Iron Man. There's absolutely nothing. There is nothing he cannot do. And yet, the thing we want to see, the moment we want to see, the reason we want to see the Iron Man movie is because actually there's a moment where we think he is dead. He could be actually dead. 
And we want to know, is he going to come back? Is he going to make it? Is he going to die? And we really think, we actually think he's going to die. We think he's actually dead. And that is the wounded warrior. That is the wounded hero. And these are popular culture examples. These are examples that are really in the mainstream. And you wouldn't really be able to deduce the wounded warrior archetype from them. And really, there are more important characters that I like to apply this profile to, this picture of the wounded warrior. And these are the people who actually went in as heroes in the war of the human condition. And in many ways, these are heroes. These people are heroes. Not in a big blockbuster movie. Not in mainstream culture. But for humanity at large. These are the heroes of humanity. And of course, I'm talking about the gurus talking about the spiritual leaders, I'm talking about the spiritual visionaries, the religious icons, both modern and of old. And if you understand this archetype of the wounded warrior, you can see that a spiritual teacher is a wounded warrior in so many ways, in the most brutal and stark and obvious of ways. And it applies to, to so many, to so many spiritual speakers, spiritual visionaries. Look at Swami Rama. Look at S.N. Goenka. S.N. Goenka teaches Vipassana meditation. He's someone who's very well aware of the pains of the world. Look at someone who, look at someone like Chit Nat Han. Look at how he talks. Look at how fragile he is. And what does he talk about? Chit Nat Han talks about suffering. He talks about letting go. He talks about pain. And he's so fragile. He's so delicate. And what about someone like Krishnamurti? Krishnamurti is also someone very fragile. Just look at the man. He's actually quite skinny. He's very soft-spoken. He's quite timid. And yet there is a kind of fighting spirit to him. He's got a deep sort of conviction to him. He does speak softly. He does speak kindly. I imagine being around Krishnamurti, like in his actual presence, you would have felt that he was a very gentle sort of person. 
very kind, very tender. And there are pictures of Krishnamurti playing with children, holding children, and smiling and being very soft, very tender, very warm. And yet also, when you hear him speak, he's got a powerful conviction. He's got a real ruthless kind of draw to him. He really kicks in. Now, Krishnamurti, a little bit about his background, he was actually chosen. His talents as a spiritual leader were actually recognized from an early age. And he was sort of being groomed. He was essentially chosen for this denomination of New Age spirituality. And these people sprung up around him and they said, we're going to make you our leader. You're going to be the the head of this giant institution. And for some years, actually, Krishnamurti did go along with this. Until eventually, actually, what happened is he came to his own. And he actually cut down the institution. He rejected the institution. And that kind of movement takes a heroic act. That kind of gesture takes a warrior. Because he would have had to go against people. He would have had to reject people. He would have had to tear down so much. And there would have been money involved, organizations involved, legal teams, this, that, and the other, other. All these things. And he completely rejected it. He completely cut it down. He could have. He could have easily just said, oh, great, I'll be your leader. Sure. He could have done that. He could have just accepted that role. He could have just taken it as it comes. But no, he fought. And then he went off to do his own speaking in his own way and was very much against institutions and organized religions. And look at someone like Osho. Of course, I love Osho. Osho is one of my favorite spiritual teachers. I've learned so much from Osho over the years. And I highly recommend all of his material to anyone who's ready to hear it. But Osho was a wounded warrior. Osho was someone who had the same kinds of convictions, perhaps even more so than most spiritual leaders, that are required to make huge actions, to make huge changes. And yet look at him, look at how fragile he is. There are multiple reports about how fragile Osho is how delicate he was, how much he needed to be taken care of. He really needed a whole team to be taken care of. He had a special kind of air conditioning, special kind of buildings, special clothes, special diet, special kinds of travel arrangements, special routine, 
personal physicians, doctors, lawyers, all of these people working round and round the clock. And look at what happened. Look at just some, just some of the controversies surrounding Osho. He was arrested. He was put into jail. He was moved from jail to jail. And there's even conspiracy theories that he was poisoned in jail. He was poisoned by Ronald Reagan's government. And that is his wound. That is his hurt. And his health quite severely did deteriorate in his later years. And he was in a lot of pain. And yet he took it so meek and mildly. When they came to arrest him, he said, okay. He went willingly, completely surrendering, completely submissive, completely giving in and bearing the pain, bearing the wound. And yet so much of his talk, so much of his vision, so much of his message to humanity was a brutal conviction a heroic act, a kind of screaming, a kind of relentless, uncompromising spreading of a glorious message. And you can see that, well, when he's sitting there and he's quiet and he speaks so softly, so slowly, he's a wounded warrior. And he's sensitive to the pains of humanity. He's sensitive to the pain of the human condition. And yet the reason he's a warrior is because he has that wound and yet he stands up and keeps going. He doesn't let that stop him. And that is the thing we want to see in a hero. That is the thing we want to see in the warrior. It's when they actually keep going, even though they're wounded. And I can definitely see that in Osho. And there's one more, there's one more character I'd like to plug into this wounded warrior. Someone who was a spiritual leader from many, many more years before the likes of Krishnamurti and Osho. And this is Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus we read about in the Bible. Now look at the wounded warrior and the story of Jesus. What happened there? As if that's not the perfect picture of the wounded warrior. Look at Jesus' wounds. He was crucified. And that's really something. It's a kind of torture, really. And there are movies in which that kind of torture has been depicted very gruesomely. It's very graphic, very unsettling. 
You get nails put straight through your hands. You have a kind of suffocation. Kind of slow and painful death as you hang there on the cross. And that's not even to mention that you've had to carry your cross. You've had to carry your own torture device through the town up to the hill. And of course, not only that, but Jesus was also beaten. He was whipped. He also had a crown of thorns put onto his head. And this is all part of just a wounding, all part of a kind of torture that Jesus went through. And yet he was so meek and mild. I get the impression that to be around Jesus might have been actually quite similar to being around Someone like Krishnamurti. And if you look at the pictures of Jesus, he's always depicted as someone quite feminine, quite soft. He's got a real sort of fluffy air to him. A sort of pretty face and soft hair. The Lamb of God. That's where that image comes from. Jesus was by many accounts, a very kind, very loving, very warm person, very soft. And yet also, he had a powerful conviction. This is why he was being crucified. Jesus was crucified because he spoke out against the establishment. And he must have had an incredible power, an extraordinary power for the authorities to be that afraid of him. And there are many accounts that prove this. There are many accounts that show that Jesus, well, he had an extraordinary influence over people. You remember that story in the Bible where Jesus says, leave your work, follow me. Come with me and I will make you fishers of men. And they do. These people drop their work, leave their families, leave their home, just get up and they go with him. And that says something about the kind of influence he had over people. And many followers flocked to Jesus. Many people were drawn to him. He would have had an incredible power. And that power would have been because of his presence, because of his way with words, because of his message that he heroically delivered. There's also the story of Jesus running into the marketplace and turning over tables and saying, this is, this is blasphemy. Because they were trading in the temples. They turned, they turned the place of worship of God into a place of trading, a place of business. And Jesus ran in and just tipped up the whole place. Created chaos everywhere. And he stated his reasons. He said, this is a place of worship. This is a place of God, not a place for economics and profiteering. And that kind of action, that kind of fighting against the establishment, shows that Jesus was a warrior. He was a fighter. He had a very strong fighting spirit in him. 
And this is how we can come to understand the wounded warrior. I'll also add that I don't want you to think that I'm a religious apologist. I'm not a, I'm not a Christian apologist. <laughs> the reason we've put Osho, Krishnamurti and Jesus all together is so that they can serve as examples within the archetype of the wounded warrior. That's what we're understanding. We're not interested in dogmatic beliefs. We're only here for some stories. We're only here to appreciate those that have been before. We're here to learn what we can and pull the things from different parts of the puzzle together, get all the pieces working together. So don't think that just because we're talking about Jesus that I'm a Christian apologist. And I hope these examples are enough for the picture to be clear about the wounded warrior. Now, the further thing to understand, and the really the practical side of this, or the way that this applies to you and me, is to see when we're only half of the wounded warrior. We can see when we're only having one side of the story. And you can remember this. You can see this in the moment when you're suffering, you're in pain, and you say, I'm not a victim, I am a warrior. And in some ways, that's a cheesy kind of self-help, motivational, pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of way of talking. But in another way, there is something quite profound about it. And of course, if you go to the other extreme and you say, I am the warrior, I am invincible, I can do anything, I am a fighter, I can win this war. Well, that side forgets that you actually have been hurt. It forgets that you are vulnerable. All these figures, Jesus, Krishnamurti, Osho, all these spiritual visionaries, they have two extreme things right next to each other, which is one, that they are vulnerable, and two, that they are invincible. And that's really what the wounded warrior comes down to. And you and me both would do well to remember that. You and me both would do well to live up to that. And I'm sure it would help when we're feeling like we're only vulnerable, we're only the victim. We're completely helpless. I'm sure it would remember, it would do well for us to remember that when we're feeling invincible, when we're feeling pepped up, when we're feeling like we've got too much adrenaline, too much testosterone, and we're trying to run into the battlefield a little bit too much eagerly. And really, you can make this a life practice. There's enough, there's enough depth in this to make it a core life practice. You can actually make 
the wounded warrior one of your high values because there are so many complexities to it. There are so many ways in which it applies and there are so many times when you can remember it and use that to see what you are, see how you're being, see what's lacking, see what you need to remember to do that you know how to do but that you've forgotten. And you can use it to see the value in things that you might not normally see the value in. Something like being vulnerable. If you see someone being vulnerable, you see someone weak, you see someone suffering, well, sometimes there is something pathetic in that. It's like, come on, you don't need my help. Ah, weakness can be so off-putting, so distasteful. Just want to get away from it in so many ways. But to remember the wounded warrior in those times, you can see, well, there's actually a great strength in being vulnerable. There's a great strength in making yourself weak. And it's not exactly that when you see someone being vulnerable, you tell them, oh, you have to be a warrior. That's not what I'm talking about. Rather, you actually have to see that that is the wounded warrior. The wounded warrior is wounded. The wounded warrior is helpless. The wounded warrior does give a sense of hopelessness. And that can be a great way of seeing that there's more to the picture than meets the eye. There's more happening than you would first conceive. There's more going on than what is just readily apparent. So those are, those are some thoughts that are bouncing around to do with the wounded warrior. And I'm very thankful to have been able to share these ideas with you because they mean a lot to me and these people that I've talked about have meant a lot to me. And maybe you can go now and take another look at some of these enlightened masters, these spiritual figures, and you can see the wounded warrior in them. And if you think about it some more, if you really flesh it out, maybe you can start to see that in yourself. Of course, it's always quite hard to give an exact application. It's always the case that when I say this is the practical take-home or this is how it applies, that even that also needs to be tested, even that needs to be understood from your own personal experience and inquired into and adapted and developed. So use it as contemplation material. Use this as something to stimulate your being. And I hope you have a beautiful day. hope you enjoy yourself. Thanks again. And that's all I have to say for now.